Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talk about the final week of Parliament's summer term and the future of the Labour Party, as ever, with George Eaton and Stephen Bush. Then I'm joined by Stephen Bush again and Karen Crampton to talk about motherhood and politics, following up from my cover story this week. Now, it might be the last week of the parliamentary year, but there's been no stopping MPs with all kinds of huge legislation, on, well, huge rows, really, I think we should probably say, and the Labour leadership contest taking an unexpected turn with the news that Jeremy Corbyn might be on course to win. I'm joined by George Eaton, our politics editor, and Stephen Bush, editor of The Staggers, to talk about it in Parliament this week. So it was a bad week for the government, wasn't it, really? Yes, well, they, um, of course, had to abandon the uh, vote they were planning to amend the Fox Hunting Act um, in response to the SNP's decision that they would vote on that, and that would have meant a defeat. And what that was a reminder of is just how difficult it is to govern with a majority of 12. I mean, here we are supposedly in the honeymoon period for the government. They've already had to pull votes on hunting, on English rights or English laws, and abandon, for now, their plan to replace the Human Rights Act with a British Bill of Rights. Wasn't uh, that a bit of an... I mean, we've talked a lot about the sort of traps and, and, and George Osborne setting traps. Do you think that that vote on Fox Hunting was in some ways, although it's a short-term humiliation for the government, a trap for the SNP? Because they've broken their principle that they would abstain on English-only matters. Yes, I think I think that's one possible uh, interpretation. Although I think the SNP are in quite a strong position on this because most people in England don't want the Hunting Act changed. So one of the arguments Nicola Sturgeon made for her U-turn was we are forming progressive alliances with people in England who want a you know, progressive uh, majority or at least a significant minority in Parliament to to act in their favour. That's very convenient, isn't it? We were, we were normally abstain, but actually quite, <laughs> I've definitely had a lot of letters about this one issue. But yeah, I, I, I think that's an interesting point. I want to come to the Labour leadership now. Mm. So, um, George, in your column this week, you wrote about the, the backlash at the Parliamentary Labour Party meeting at the start of the week against Harriet Harman's decision that she wouldn't vote against all the budget measures on, on welfare reforms. It got quite testy. There was a great description of the um, the policy, the two-child policy, being reminiscent of Mao Zedong and King Herod. Yes. So I, I can imagine there was sort of blood on the walls after that meeting. Yes, I mean, Harriet Harman and Chris Leslie, in the wake of the budget, made it immediately clear that Labour, as they saw it, wouldn't fall into the trap of opposing everything. And they don't want to do what they did in, in 2010, because they think that just makes you look like a party of protest rather than a responsible opposition that could eventually form a government. 
Uh, so, for instance, they said they wouldn't oppose the public sector pay cap of 1%, that they would support the uh, benefit cap, even though it's been uh, significantly reduced. Um, but the tipping point came when Harriet Harman said in an interview uh, on the Sunday Politics that she would not oppose the two-child limits on tax credits, meaning that uh, if you have a third child, you won't receive child tax credits for them. And that was a sort of uh, sort of a radioactive sort of explosion in the party, really. That uh, because for, for Labour for Labour MPs, yeah. So as as the language you you were referring to suggests, this is a sort of visceral issue. Mm-hmm. That they think it really is immoral rather than just um, unwise what the Conservatives are doing. It was made for a very interesting PMQs yesterday. So Carrie Harman was standing in. Obviously, there were beckons from the you know so the Tory MPs mm-hmm. kind of saying like join us, join us. Obviously, quite enjoying her discomfort. And then I thought it was very interesting, the SNP's Angus Robertson, who now gets a couple of questions, um, he said, he he brought up the idea about the fact that if, you know, this idea about if you have a, a third child through rape, then you have to kind of kind of basically go down to the job centre and personally prove to Ian Duncan Smith that something untoward happened, when we know that, um, you know, rape is a hugely underreported and under-prosecuted crime. And I thought it was quite interesting to see the SNP kind of, re- basically both sides revelling in, in Labour's discomfort. So the SNP from the left and the Tories from, from the right... Talking about being caught between left and right, see when I did this, Stephen. Um, the Labour leadership. I, I mean, I keep getting, I keep hearing from people in in Labour, kind of disbelief that it's all gone bonkers. They really didn't foresee that having Jeremy Corbyn on the ballot was anything more than a kind of sort of pity move that would let him sort of say a few things about the Iraq War and and be a totally marginalised figure. That's not what's happened, is it, at all? No. Um, there was a general orthodoxy within the PLP and within the high command of two out of the three other candidates that effectively, there was, effectively it was like, well, you've had your fun. You've had your five years of going, oh, let's go a little bit to the left. It's ended in disaster. Now you're going to come back to the centre. Um which in some ways actually was the same miscalculation that underpinned the whole Ed Miliband strategy. It was five years of thinking the country would return gratefully to Labour. And um, obviously that hasn't happened. The party has moved in Ed Miliband's direction and meant much of it seems to feel that he lost because he was insufficiently anti-austere. There is also another aspect, uh, I think, to what's going on at the moment, which is that not, the party isn't convinced that either of the other three can win. So the kind of Paul Flynn left, who's one MP in the Commons, who's never never really voted for Tony Blair in day-to-day votes, but voted for him in the leadership, voted for David Miliband and has endorsed Liz Kendall. That bit of the left, which is willing to vote for the right if it thinks it can win, is not convinced in the country by any of the three candidates from the Labour right. Someone texted me yesterday saying, well, I figured if we're going to go down, we might as well go down in flames. Um, which <laughs> Slightly alarming. Yeah, yeah but <laughs> I think, you know, ultimately you can, you can sort of see the attraction. If, you, if, you're, if your thinking is, well, we'll lose with Yvette Cooper because she's married to Ed Bald and she's not very interesting. We'll lose with Liz Kendall because she's not the finished product and you're not going to become the finished product in the bare pit of... Um, being leader of the opposition, and we're not going to win with Andy Burnham because the Sun hates him, then you might look, You pro- it's reasonable to look at Jeremy Corbyn at that point and go, well, we're not going to win, but at least I wouldn't um, be upset by any of it. Is that, um, George, you think a kind of touch of the of the Ian Duncan Smith? Is that how Ian Duncan Smith ended up leader of the Tory party? Yes, it is. And it, it's about choosing ideological purity over political pragmatism and who's most likely to become prime minister. And um, in the same way that you now have Liz Kendall and Harriet Harman described as Tories, basically, for supporting some um, some austerity 
which of course was was the position under Ed Miliband, just less explicitly. Um, well, then you, know, you have Ken the SNP Clark... attacking them mm. when the SNP's election manifesto was actually in some ways more more whatever the word is either fiscally prudent or austere depending on your point yes. of view than, than Labour's. Yes, and the SNP does make it that more difficult for Labour to uh, to move closer to to the centre undoubtedly because you now have. Um, a, a party that, that, as you say, deploys left-wing rhetoric very effectively in a way you didn't have before. The Lib Dems under under Nick Clegg had, of course, become a very moderate centrist party, and they weren't. And now you have the SNP almost playing the role that the Lib Dems played under Charles Kennedy, or or, or, or it's it's like having sort of multiple George Galloways in the chamber. It does make it <laughs> much more difficult. Um, and I want to turn finally to the Lib Dem leadership, um, mm. which is is on the verge of as as we record this on the verge of being announced, possibly has been announced by the time you're listening to this. I, I'm going to put, uh, put my hat on the floor. No, that's not a metaphor, but whatever. Uh, I'm going to say uh, Tim Farron looks to be unless unless polling really, we might as well just all give up and just look at the entrails of a goat. Um, would would have him as a leader. What's um what's in his intray? What what does he need to do, Stephen, to to recover from the most amazing shellacking that any political party has had in, in living memory. Well, he sort of needs to set out a unique reason to vote for the Liberal Democrats at the next election, whether that is to pitch as the we are the party which can beat the Tories in the southwest and Cornwall, whether that is the... Because ultimately they campaigned themselves into the ground last time and they were crushed. Boundary changes will make it harder for them next time and the Tories want to gobble up those last remaining eight... Um, so yeah, basically they need to set out a reason to exist. Um, Is there a danger, George, that um, from people that I talk to, you know, people like Tim Farron, he's he's very well respected and well regarded. That the concern is often that is he too much of a social democrat rather than a liberal, and that kind of a parks tanks on on Labour's lawn. But b, if you are going to look at a reason why you'd have the Lib Dems, look at the ways in which Labour is often quite illiberal, you know, quite statist, um, and, and that's where that's where the votes are for the Lib Dems. Mm. Well, I think obviously there has been a lot of um, arguments and, and tension over his socially conservative voting record. I don't think that will be an issue sort of once he's leader because he has sort of made several mayor culpas about that. And of course, these issues are not sort of particularly live ones mm-hmm. in, in British politics at the moment. But you're you're right that yes, yeah, he, he is social a social democrat on economic policy, which potentially does allow him to outflank Labour from the left on some issues because the view among MPs is still that whether it's Andy Burnham or Vet Cooper or, or, or Jeremy Corbyn excluded, they will move, they will take a more centrist position on business and on the economy than Ed Miliband did. And then, of course, there are the civil liberties issues. And he is he is passionate on civil liberties and constitution, on constitutional reform and climate change. Those are the distinctive issues that he'll have to embrace and make a lot of noise about if the Lib Dems are to get heard and to be seen as relevant. And if um, there is a vote on further action on extending our airstrikes into Syria mm. and maybe even about, I mean, I'm sure who knows what special forces do, but, uh, you know, kind of ground troops in Syria, uh, do you think that that's something that under Tim Fran the Lib Dems would oppose? I think they would support it. I mean, they, I think Tim Farron supported the airstrikes um, in Iraq against ISIS. Most now accept the argument that it, it doesn't make sense to um, respect what is now an artificial border between Iraq and Syria when um, when ISIS is on the march. But it's, it's a good test. I mean, it, there will be votes in opposing it. And so it is a test of, wit, of, of Tim Farron's political principle, whether he will go for an early tactical victory. I think there are lots of other issues that he could, um, he could benefit uh, from, from protesting on. I, I think it would be unwise to pick that one. And finally, Stephen, if 
Jeremy Corbyn did get elected Labour leader. How long do you think he would last as Labour leader? I mean, I'm going to caveat this first by saying I think it's unlikely. I think that he has a chance of coming first in the first round, but there are no second preferences in their preferential voting system, I think, for Corbyn. I actually think he would uh, he'd probably last um, at least till 2018 and probably for the full whack. Labour doesn't get rid of its leaders, and ultimately the reason why they're in this mess is because... 11 of their parliamentary party were too scared of their activists not to go, no, I don't want him on the ballot, he's a loser. Like, the reason why you have Yvette and Andy going, oh, well, let's move a bit to the left and not tackling him, is because the parliamentary party is scared of Labour activists. Mm. And that will not change. But isn't that the problem? I mean, I I think I was talking yesterday about exactly the same thing happening with the Republican Party in the US, that you basically have a a selectorate versus an electorate problem. So you have the Republican Party primaries where they just debate with each other, and now I think there are suggestions there that they would like to see people debating across the parties. So it becomes a kind of contest about who can say the meanest things about abortion, who can say the nicest things about guns, who can, you know, wear most flag pins on their lapel. And then they kind of get through that process, and it's, you know, it, it absolutely battered Mitt Romney last time. And you come out of that, and then you have to go, okay, well, <laughs> that's done. Now, here I am, I'm going to have to appeal to, you know, Hispanic voters when I've been incredibly hardline on immigration up until now, say. Um, is a version of that happening in the in the Labour Party? Yes, I think there is a yeah. The slightly unnerving thing for Labour is that as you know, pensioners who twenty years ago were voting for yeah, as forty somethings were voting for Tony Blair by twenty points, are now voting for the Conservatives by thirty points. Uh, the only demographic which voted for them last time were eighteen to twenty four year olds who don't vote, and in any case, were the only demographic they were offering a tax cut to. Uh, in the shape of a tuition fee haircut. Um, so it's rather bleak for them on that score. And you do have a movement that, you know, for many good reasons, does want full-throated opposition to austerity, full-throated opposition to the further rounds of cuts. Yeah, I, I think it may be at the moment that it is impossible to marry the desires of Labour's base with the votes they need to win. Uh, a general election, and it may not be for some time. And finally, George, I want to just check in with the deputy leader race. We haven't heard so much about that for obvious reasons. It's not quite such a high-profile contest. Is there anything interesting happening there? I mean, are are people being asked, could you work with, with Jeremy Corbyn for a start? Um, well, one reason we haven't heard too much about it is that the view among MPs is that it is now a shoo-in for Tom Watson. Um, and Tom Watson was quite politically smart early on in defining the job as a campaigning role and saying, I am, I am sort of the the man for this and and he he taught a huge number of constituencies during the general election campaign and he identified this quite a while ago as the as the job he wanted um, and so he does have a huge amount of um, support among activists for for those reasons and and of course his his crusade against um, Rupert Murdoch and, and News Corporation which I yeah which is something I think is interesting if you say that you know the 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 odds still suggest that Andy Burnham is is the favourite. So you're going to end up with a top two in Labour, both of whom have taken very explicitly mm. anti-Murdoch positions. Now, while I'm sure that will absolutely delight many people on on the left, it is a it is an electoral problem. So I'm sure we will return to that. But for the moment, I'll say thank you very much to Stephen and George. I've written this week's cover story, which is about the twin ways in which women face discrimination in politics. Um, if they are mothers, they obviously have to have time out for maternity leave, and, and it's often very difficult for them to come back. Whereas if they're single, they're often uh, attacked in the press, and, and, and it's assumed that... 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Voters won't want somebody who has nothing else in their life, as it's often framed. I'm joined by Stephen Bush and Caroline Crampton to talk a little bit more about this. Um, Stephen, you, you obviously talk to a lot of MPs. How hard do you think that they find it to juggle family life? How unfamily friendly is Westminster? I think exceptionally so. And actually, depressingly, it's got worse since 2009, since the expenses scandal. Because there was a period under New Labour, and I'll let you talk about like some of the stuff you talked about, Patricia Hewitt, with, uh, in a bit, where they tried to change things and that made things better for a lot of people. Since the expenses scandal, um, one of the rules it was introduced is you can only claim for a one-bedroom flat. Which basically means if you are not a London MP, you cannot live with your children in London anymore. The life than, say, Yvette Cooper or um, Patricia Hewitt, the MP, uh, Liz Kendall's predecessor in Leicester West have, where they could live with their families in London, is not one which is available if you are, say, Nicky Morgan, the new MP for Loughborough, or Liz Kendall, or, um, say, Alison McGovern, the MP for Wirral South. Yeah, those MPs cannot, even if they... And obviously some MPs want to live at home. Yeah, they are the MPs where they grew up or, you know, yeah, for one reason or another, they, they, they live full time in the constituency. Uh, but they cannot even have the option of bringing their children with them now. I think that was one of the things I was, I was sort of surprised because, you know, you kind of assume, you know in a kind of glib level that obviously MPs work in, in two places. And particularly now, people are very hot on the idea that they don't want their MP just to be somebody who's totally Westminster based and who kind of calls in and sort of goes oh how charming what lovely rockery and then leaves again so yeah you have this situation where in 97 these 101 female um, Labour MPs turned up and they all said oh god we're gonna we're gonna overhaul the working hours this is one of the things that you know isn't is a, a really easy thing to change to make workplaces more family friendly then they had discovered exactly like you say this kind of two-tier system where the problem was that all the ones who could get home to their families every night wanted essentially a normal working day they wanted nine to five but the ones who were never going to see their families anyway wanted a late start on monday so they could have the weekend in their constituency and then come up and um, an early finish on on thursday they wanted to compress their work and one of the things that's been a great success for making workplaces more family friendly is more kind of flexible working more, you know, teleconferencing, more working from home, more people working, job sharing, things like that, all of which are really hard to jam into the Westminster system. So um, Patricia Hewitt, for it, tells this great story about how she wanted to have a job sharing junior minister. Uh, and she suggested this to Tony Blair. And he went, job sharing? What's that? And Jonathan Powell, his chief of staff, went, yeah, it's when um, it's when two people share a job. <laughs> uh, and then and they were quite up for it at that point, but it, it never quite happened. But um, there's a suggestion that, I mean, the Lib Dems want to get back on the table, the idea of talking about job sharing MPs. They think the only thing that would be a problem would be voting. How do you, what, what do you do about that? You know, you have an idea that you have uh, an MP who is accountable. But there are there are ways of uh, there are ways of looking at it. Um, I want to talk to you, Caroline, about uh, about the cover because it's been a quite a provocative cover. What was your first reaction when you saw it? So, just for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's Nicola Sturgeon, Theresa May, Liz Kendall, and Angela Merkel looking at a crib, but instead of a baby in the crib, there's a there's a ballot box. I really liked it when I first saw it. I thought, as a cover is supposed to be, it's a, a sort of eye catching 
representation of what the piece is about you know so and um it's by the the drawing the painting is done by david young who does quite a lot of our covers it's in his sort of quite distinctive style and i thought it was great and then when it went on the internet uh yesterday afternoon a whole new dimension was discovered by our readers in which they sort of seemed to be blaming us for the problem that you're pointing out. There was quite a lot of, well, specific, ask specifically you, Helen. It's yeah, all well, your fault. I, I Sexism in politics, your fault. fault. But, I, well, but this is, because it's something that, um, you know, obviously we thought about it a lot. Um, and one of the things that, um, you know, I, I was very alert to the idea that anything that we depicted, anything that we depicted female politicians doing would attract accusations of sexism. Mm. And actually the comeback to that was... Well, hang on a minute. I, anybody who's seen our covers will know that we have, you know, kind of Nick Clegg being buried up to his neck in sand or... Um, Nigel you know, Farage wearing a Victorian bathing suit or... Yeah, yeah they're caricatures. So but we, this isn't a caricature even. They're just women standing there. And there's, there's actually this sort of weird thing where if you treated female politicians as badly as we treat male politicians and, and took the mick as much as we do in our covers about them, people would, would see that as, as sexist, which I think is a really difficult thing. But yeah, as you say, the one thing that really the one overriding response was why are you making this just about women why is it always questions about women but it is about women the the cover line is the motherhood trap and your whole piece makes this point that this this double bind that women find themselves in does not happen to men men do not sort of get flack for either having children or not having children if they have children it's a useful prop for them to have in photo shoots or on campaign trail if they don't there's no stigma to that they're just professional men doing their jobs yeah i thought ben bradshaw was really interesting so he's running mm. for the deputy leader and i know that um Kezia Dugdale, who's running for Scottish leader, and um, Stella Creasy, who's running for Labour deputy leader, have been faced with these sort of whispers about the kind of, you know, um, um, Stella Creasy, when she was running for Walthamstow, her her opponent, her Tory opponent, put out a leaflet with her qualifications on that said, you know, has worked in a supermarket, wife, mother, uh, understands you. And then the list under Stella was, um, has career politician, understands Ed Miliband. So the implicit rebuke was that by not being a wife and a mother, this was evidence of her not being a normal Mm. human being. Um, So I put that press question to, to Ben Bradshaw and he went, oh, no, it's never really been, it's never really been raised to get mince me. And he said, and which I thought was a really and quite well, quite quite a beautiful thing to say. He said, you know, me and the man that I've been with for twenty years, you know, we don't have children, but we do have a family. You know, we've got everyone's got parents, everyone's got um, you know nieces and nephews. They might have extended family people they consider to be family, even though they're not genetically related. And he actually, you know, he cared for his mum when she had Alzheimer's when he was a teenager. So men do experience caring responsibilities, but there is that particular feeling that motherhood or not defines women's lives in a way that it, it mm. doesn't. But there are there are fathers now, Stephen, aren't there, in the Commons who are quite new men. Yeah, there are there are sort of lots of hands-on uh, dads in the Commons, and again, they tend to be in the twenty ten intake, so they tend to be the ones who actually are also struggling with this one bed flat policy. Um, but even so, the stat I thought was most arresting in the piece is the one about the shadow cabinet, which I assume we've done because there is a roughly equal number of men mm. and women. Of the 14 men in the shadow cabinet, they have 31 children between them. Of the 13 women between them, they have 16 children between them. Um, you know, I, I am childless, so I'm going to feel free to offend all of the other childless people listening to the podcast. I, you know, I assume it would be harder to do my job well if I also had to look after a small human being. What that stat says to me is that clearly the second you make it even a little bit harder for women to get to the top, even in the Labour Party, it suddenly becomes uh, near impossible. And there's still this thing with, you know, new model dads, as it were, and people kind of go, oh, isn't he doing well? 
isn't he special? Yeah, like yeah, like it's it's almost trendy, really. He's doing almost half the work, yeah. and then it's kind of like. I, I think that's really interesting because you know you can say well you're you're cherry picking, and obviously there are very high profile mothers. You know, Vet Cooper has got three children; she's yeah. in a Labour leadership race. Um, but the overall stat is that 45% of, of women in the Commons don't have children, and it's 28% of the men. Now, some of those people had, might go on to in the future. Actually, if you look at the current average, it's about one in five women will get to the age of 45 without having children. So there's definitely, even taking into account that some MPs will be younger than that, there's definitely a, it's affecting women in a way that it's not affecting men. And the other thing that's interesting is that women tend to wait until their children are older before they go into politics. So... Um, I think that there is a there is a movement in the Tory party, particularly that they think that the way to solve this may be to ask more women to look into um, politics as a second career, something that you do in your in your fifties. The problem with that is that you this is the idea about and this is why reaching the top is important is that that's not where leaders come from now. Very rarely do you get a, a British political party leader who who turns up and first elected in, at the age of 60. It's just not how it works. So that, that leadership track is is broken for women because it... I mean, for example, you know, Rachel Reeves, who possibly might have run for the Labour deputy leadership, is currently on, on maternity leave. It, um, it, just, it just has fallen that way. We were talking just uh, the other day about um, who might have been an alternative candidate from the left of the Labour Party instead of Jeremy Corbyn, and the name that came up was Lisa Nandy. Um, apart from she's just had a baby, so she's just not there at the right time yeah. for when and, and, and the nominations could have happened. might not win this time, who I think would certainly have crushed all opposition last time around, didn't run because her children were younger and she would easily, I think, have beaten either Miliband. But that but that but then but then it was deemed to be not she needed to be around when they were young, but not her husband, which is a Her husband of, ran last time. Yeah, yeah. So so I mean you know, obviously we can't comment on how people are free to structure their parental arrangements however they see fit. But I think you do have to zoom out and look at it at a at a structural but, level. It's so interesting the bit I really was intrigued by the bit in your piece where you talked to Joe Swinson um, about, and she, like um, Yvette Cooper in her balls, her husband was in Parliament at the same time as her, and they had a small baby, and they managed to get the rules changed for voting. You, so you could walk, you can now walk through a voting lobby holding a baby, um, but they used him to get that changed rather than her. So he was the first one to take their, yeah. their son through. I thought what was interesting also about Joe Joe Swinson's experience was the fact that they provided a kind of perfect control. You know, mm. you've got a kind of control group as well as a as a study group because she said that people expected there'd be times they wouldn't be able to get hold of her. And they didn't expect that for Duncan, and I think that's one of the things that when I talk to women who are trying to match up a kind of career is that all the pressure all and everyone around you assumes that it will fall more heavily on a, on a woman and that's actually kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy so she also talks about the fact that on maternity leave you know you learn how to do a lot of things and this is something that you know my family have said to me as well you know you're you become the one who is does the admin for the child and then it's very hard to hand that all over actually someone else I spoke to who didn't go in the piece said also the other thing is you a lot of women don't want to hand it over they mm. they, if they feel that they will be very harshly judged if they do and that they don't quite trust their partner not to leave a child you know in a supermarket or something like that which is you know which is but these are really strong social forces that shape people's behaviors you know and 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 then because they're so strong they seem natural Hmm. so i i know i've got a female friend who's she and her husband both work and actually he was he was freelancing so he was more free to do stuff but the teachers at school would still send notes home for her you know, when you give this to your wife, like he was sort of, you know, he was just a kind of deputy. And that's what, um, 
the research shows a great book I read last year called Overwhelmed said that women tend to be more often the supervising parent and men get to be the kind of fun parent. Mm. So they come in for a couple, they do a couple of hours of babysitting, but they don't, they're not in overall control, essentially. Um, Stephen, do you think it will get better? Um, I mean, I, I, I'm innately uh, pessimistic. I think if, you know, hopefully... Labour will get its act together, the Tories may lose the next election or at least lose their majority. Um, if they're dependent on Lib Dems and votes from outside, it's the kind of thing which will happen. Um, yeah, I think the the other point that Jo Swinton makes in your piece about shared maternity leave, one MP pointed out to me, and the thing she said, she said, well, the thing you forget is that in the first nine months, everyone has this thing that the person who has to work sleeps. Mm. So you get into this pattern in the first nine months of one of you gets up, when the person cries, now when you both go back to work, then either that doesn't change or the other one has to learn how to quiet her. And that's something that's yeah. in Sheryl Sambo's book as well, Lean In, which is the idea that if you go it, because of the way that the pay gap works and the way that women are encouraged towards um, lower paid work, more casual work, we know that there are more women in part-time work, um, then if you go into having the baby and one of your salaries is already lower, then it, that's the one that's it makes it's also easier to sacrifice. Mm. Um, and you can say what you want, you know, when men and women work in the same jobs, the pay gap is now diminishing. The, the fact is that very often that they don't. And there's a great line that I think Simon Cooper wants written in the FT, which is, you know, the fastest way to reduce the wages in any sector is to feminise it. So if you have a, a, a profession that is traditionally male and is quite high status, therefore quite high well paid, if huge numbers of women come into that, then actually the floor tends to, to drop out of it. And, and that's just the way that it works. I was quite pessimistic too, Stephen, when I came out of, of this, because I think there is... It, what was interesting about it for me is I'm sure people, some people will say, well, this is just you know 650 people who are all quite you know, 67 grand a year, why should we really care? But actually, it applies all the way down the job scale. And as jobs become more insecure, as you get more things like zero-hours contracts, fewer people get employment protection. If we leave the EU, you know, you might get very well get things like maternity leave rights might come under a lot of stress. All of those things make it much easier to hire somebody who, who doesn't have children, who isn't encumbered by caring responsibilities. And as there is no current way to fund all the elderly care that needs to happen, that's going to fall on a, a whole new set of people. They're going to have yet more unpaid labour that's demanded of them. So that was pretty bleak. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you should read the piece anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only just to, to be more accurately and statistically backed in your in your depression about these things. Um thanks very much, Caroline and Stephen. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.